Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Global, where we tell you what you need to know about news and politics from around the world. It's a strange old world out there with plenty of twists and turns. So every Friday, we're here to make it feel a little easier to comprehend. On this edition, Putin meets with Kim Jong-un. Should we be worried? Parts of North Africa are devastated by natural disasters and Britain is left out of the new G20 trade corridor. I'm Chris Jones, and joining me to talk about the news around the world is broadcast journalist Laura Makin Isherwood. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Did you survive the heat? It was pretty high over the weekend, wasn't it? I was actually not in London for that, so lucked out, really. Yeah. Where were you? Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, it wasn't hot there. Well, it was a bit warm, but sea breeze. Lovely. That sounds lovely. Well, there's a lot to get on with today. Should we just get stuck in? Yes, let's go for it. Perfect. Well, let's start today with the meeting between Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un, because this is big, isn't it, Laura? Uh, Not just in terms of the war in Ukraine, but for global security concerns as well. Those meetings are over now and were reported to have only lasted four to five hours. What did we really get out of them to begin with? Well, not a lot, to be fair. There's not a lot of detail that's come out of it. But ultimately, we were focused on the fact that these two men, I'm going to describe them sarcastically as icons, were coming together to have a chat about the things that they care about. Good old chat. Good old chinwag. Mm. And it appears that it's things like technology and then, of course, weapons Mm. that have been really high up on the agenda for them because Russia, it seems, might be struggling in terms of its production of weapons. And so it's now looking to other people to potentially tempt them and ask them for more support as it continues its war in Ukraine. And, and what does what does Putin really want out of this? Is, is it just weapons, do you think? Weapons, it seems, because we know that Kim Jong-un is obviously pushing his uh, ballistic agenda, at Mm -hmm. least pushing the amount of supplies that he has, but also maybe some sort of just support, uh, somebody to lean on, maybe talk to about the current situation in Ukraine. Just a little bit of a a shoulder to cry on, potentially. And at the moment, North Korea is one of the few countries that has showed its support for this invasion of Ukraine. So it seems like it's the natural way for Putin to try to lead. He's also, of course, we believe, accepted an invitation to head to North Korea as well himself. No clue exactly when that's going to take place. But it seems like these pals are about to get even pallier. Yeah. And what about the timing of this? Because it seems to come at quite a important time for Putin when you consider the conflict that's going on in Ukraine. You know, we we talked a couple of weeks ago about the number of troops that Russia have lost that 
keeps on rising, keeps getting higher and higher. This is a, a good time for Putin to get some support from the likes of North Korea, isn't it? Yeah, it seems so. And even over the last couple of days, there have been increased uh, strikes on key areas in Crimea by Ukraine, it seems. We've seen Russia's Black Sea Fleet hit again. That's in Sevastopol. And there's some sources claiming that they were British Storm Shadow cruise missiles that were used to attack that. So Ukraine is continuing to push on Crimea in particular, trying to starve out those key routes for weapons to be replenished into those key fighting areas. And yet, as you said, those stocks are not easily replaced by Russian production. So This is key for Putin if he wants to try to up the ante, try to get enough stocks into the country that he can then eventually try to pass on to his troops. But there's been a lot of criticism about people allowing this to happen. And one of the key critics over the last sort of 24 hours has been Boris Johnson. He's saying that the West needs to up its support now for Ukraine and saying they need to get on with killing Russians and expelling the invaders. So this appears to be, at least in Boris Johnson's mind, a really key moment in this war. It's a really strange world that we're quoting Boris Johnson I know. in a positive light. I isn't know. It? Well, is it positive? Who knows? And Who also, knows? where the flip is he? He's been ousted, of course, from uh, Parliament, yeah. and now he's throwing his two pence in about this. Yeah, he's probably writing a book like Liz Truss or something like that. And that's what they all do, isn't it? Um, anyway, coming back to this meeting, what about North Korea? What, what do they get out of this meeting? Well, We obviously know that North Korea's economy is struggling. There's an issue in terms of food actually feeding people. Yes. And North Korea obviously wants to spend more cash on developing its weapons armory and also its technological capabilities as well. Mm. So this is about economic support, it seems, from Putin. And Russia is one of the countries that can allow it. So even though Russia is being squeezed by Western sanctions, still it appears if they can get, you know, weapons in return it appears like at least North Korea believes there could be investment in return. Yeah, and and these are two of the most isolated world leaders really uh, across the globe. Um, How dangerous then, therefore, is it that these two come together and then leave these meetings better friends almost than than they were in the first place? As I said in the intro, should we be worried? I imagine there will be a lot of people that are worried about this individually. It's too early to say, but there will be a lot of people keeping eyes on this because, as you say, they are isolated from the international community. They have continually decided to flout uh, rules, trying to push on that international rules-based order. And if they do build closer ties, then it does have the potential to try to at least escalate tensions with the West, but also, of course, the situation in Ukraine as well. And so that is going to be key on a lot of leaders' minds. And talking about keeping eyes on this, what are the likes of Jens Stoltenberg and Antonio Guterres saying about this? Because they would have been watching this intensely to see what comes out of it, wouldn't they? Yeah. I mean, there's not been too much, I'd say, in terms of actual messaging from these groups Sources within NATO have been reported to have said that the alliance is concerned about more weapons and already the UN has cut the country off. So a continuation of that stance appears likely. Washington, however, the White House, has warned that there could be heavier sanctions placed on Russia if this escalation continues. And so it seems like they're probably trying to establish exactly what they can do about this. But it is a lot of watching and waiting. And until we get details of exactly what was discussed in these meetings, if we do, because, of course, it's tricky to get any verified info from within those countries unless Mm. it's come from Russian or North Korean uh, media outlets, which, of course, are heavily uh, watched 
by each of those leaderships is very difficult to try to get a grip on what's happening. Next on Bunker Global, a series of catastrophes have hit parts of North Africa. First, exactly one week ago, a devastating 6.8 magnitude earthquake hit Marrakesh, Morocco. It's the worst in 60 years for the country, and the death toll isn't finalised, but we know it's killed thousands. Then, only days later, Storm Daniel made its way over Libya and the eastern side of North Africa. If you paid any attention to the news, you might have seen just how destructive this has been, especially in the city of Derna. Buildings have been completely washed away, along with potentially tens of thousands of people. As we record, the death toll is still jumping massively. For more on this, I spoke to Libyan journalist Abdul Kader Assad. He's the senior political editor for the Libya Observer. I started by asking him about the scale of the situation. So uh, it was all about the the Mediterranean uh, storm Daniel that was uh, heading toward Libya uh, from, you know, uh, first hit uh, Turkey, Bulgaria and Greece, and then it came to the shores of the eastern uh, region in Libya. And uh, the irony here is that the National Meteorological Center in Libya warned 72 hours before the storm arrived uh, on the coast. And it actually said that there, there should have been evacuations of people uh, on the areas that are most vulnerable to be hit by the storm. But uh, the eastern government, because Libya has two governments, mm. west and east, the east is uh, directly involved. And then the eastern government advised uh, otherwise. They said, no, let the people stay at home. And uh, they added to the, to the bad situation by asking the Darna mayor, where the storm hit, to declare a curfew on the night of the storm. And this made the scale of the number of deaths uh, even higher. Uh, we're talking now, let me give you the latest update from the Darna mayor today on Thursday morning. Uh, between 18,000 people and 20,000 people are feared to be dead, wow. uh, based on the number of the buildings and houses that uh, have been swept, uh, washed away by the torrents. Keep in mind that Darna is a small town yes. of from 88 to 95,000 population. So that's over 20% of the population. Yeah, that is absolutely incredible, isn't it? To, to, to hear those numbers. And I can't imagine what it is actually like being in that situation. I've, I've only seen the pictures from Derna and the catastrophe is is massive it's it's unspeakable really let's take a, a little bit of a step back though you were talking about the the political division uh, that exists in in libya just give us a bit more of a sense of how that division has played into the scope of the situation that we're seeing yeah so you have a internationally recognized government in tripoli that's western libya and you have a, a rival government uh, in eastern Libya that is directly now involved in the storm uh, response. And these two governments uh, have, made it, have made the relief response and the international assistance uh, uh, slow. Right. Uh, now, you know, like the, the storm hit on Saturday and the relief started to come to Darna on Tuesday. That is three days after the, the, the calamity. And why is that? Because the... West and East governments cannot coordinate. They don't have uh, open communication channels uh, and they do not want actually to 
to let uh, the other take the credit. Now, let's just explain this, how, how the mentality is going on. The Eastern government wants to take all the credit of responding to the uh, disaster. They want to show the international community and their alliances that they are the ones who are directly involved on the ground, yes. that they're dispatching their teams and volunteers, and that they are uh, coordinating all the international help through them only. But the Western government is also sending convoys of aids, uh, teams of rescuers, and also asking uh, their alliances and countries of uh, friendly countries of the Western government to, to send help. And this help has to go through the Eastern authorities to be filtered first, checked and controlled, and then sent to the area. This has made it the nature, the nature of relief response was sluggish. It was mm -hmm. very, very slow and affected the search and rescue operations. So, so is this more about the, the image, the political image of uh, the, the, the differing factions in Libya? Uh, that's the main thing that's at heart here, rather than the well-being of, of the citizens that have been impacted. Is, is that true? Is, is, is that the case? Unfortunately true. Yes, it's unfortunately true because wow. they're putting their their own narrow interests uh, ahead of the people's uh, protection, be it civilians' lives. They're just caring about their the, their alliances. Uh, they're they're caring about the credit that they could gather yeah. out of this disaster. And uh, keep in mind that this is uh, the first major disaster that happens in Libya. And let's let's just uh, uh, say something about their. The ego that is just, uh, you know, going on in uh, between these two uh, authorities in East and West Libya, they're just uh, searching for credit. Uh, you know, uh, we're hearing about survivors. This is day five. Today, there have been uh, some survivors, uh, 40, about 40 survivors uh, picked up from wow. the Rappole. So imagine if, if this response came earlier, how many we could have saved. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the first disaster of its kind in the in the region there, and I want to talk about that in terms of climate change a, a little bit because Libya signed the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in 2015, and it ratified the Paris Climate Accord in 2021 as well. Uh, yet it hasn't really submitted any any real plans towards uh, combating climate change. Why is that? Do you think something like Storm Daniel is likely to change that? Well, um, just uh, I'm going to be totally honest and you'll Please. be surprised by this. You know, the idea of ratifying such international agreements and uh, by, the, by, the, by the Libyan state is not because they are directly involved in the response and the change, the climate change uh, agreements. It's not because they're going to take action regarding the environment and the climate inside Libya. No, it is just a political move, political card that they just sign these agreements yeah. in order to impress their allies, in order to impress the governments that uh, they're backing up. And uh, in this way, they can prolong their term in office. They can just have more political support from the governments of other states. Who uh, Those other states, like European states, Western states, they pushed consecutive Libyan governments to sign such agreements, not because they know that Libya will take some action, no, they know that Libya has no capacity of taking action. Actually, the Darna city is not collapsing today. It is uh, a city lacking a lot of uh, services. It has a near collapsing 
infrastructure and uh, this was the, the the last nail in its coffin the, this disaster so so how do people within libya feel about that having no real plan towards combating climate change surely they must be terrified yes of course i mean we have like some environmentalists we have research in universities specifically directed at derna city uh, by students who who care and by uh, academics who care about the climate change and the, the infrastructure that could resist such, you know, natural disasters. And the governments uh, in Libya do not care about science now. They do not care about right. environment. They just are vying for power, political gain. Uh, you know, this has been going on since the fall of uh, Gaddafi's regime. Just to finish off, I want to talk about the people that are involved in this and, and come away from the politics a bit more because it is real people that are being impacted by this as you say 20,000 people could uh, have died because of uh, storm daniel um how will libya recover from this how long will it take is there even a, a time frame we can put on this i know you're saying that the infrastructure in a lot of towns and cities in libya just isn't set up to deal with things like this how long is this going to take to to really kind of recover from well actually I- i'm going to be positive and say that it will take some some years, but uh, I'm just going to tell you about the reports from inside the city, Darna. They said that half of the city has been demolished, swept away by the floods. So this is, and now you're left with uh, 50% of the city. And this 50% of the city is lacking uh, infrastructure services. So the locals in there are saying that it is a place that you can no longer live in and they are calling for the evacuation of the entire left population to nearby cities and towns because Darna needs to be um, reconstructed from the ground up. So it's going to take a lot, a lot of time, more than we can just put our hands on. Well, our hopes and prayers are with the people of, of Darna and of, of, of Libya as a whole to Shukran Abdulkader. Have one. Thank you. Laura, coming back to you now, we've heard from Abdul Kader about Libya and, and the massive uphill battle that, that they face there. What about in, in Morocco? How serious is that, that situation and the comeback that they face? So one of the biggest issues is exactly where this earthquake has taken place, 6.8 magnitude. And it's centred near to Marrakesh, but then also within the Atlas Mountains, which is a huge mountain range, tricky to access. And so consequently, there are a lot of villages, people that have lost their homes or completely flattened those villages. And there's a struggle to try to get that aid to them simply because the routes in are so difficult. And that's going to be one of the biggest problems that Morocco may face there, just the sheer trickiness with which people are having to you know, transport things, transport aid and try to get into those locations to help people because there's been stories of individuals having to dig through the rubble with their hands themselves because they simply haven't had access to this aid. And one of the things that Abdul Kader said to me uh, when we spoke about uh, aid is the length of time that it's taken to get that aid to the people who most need it. Now, it's slightly different in Libya compared to Morocco. In Libya, you have, as uh, Abdul Kader mentioned, the political division that has really caused chaos in terms of getting uh, aid to the people that need it, whereas in Morocco, they've been really slow to accept foreign aid. What? Why is that exactly, do you think? 
Well, a lot of people are saying that this isn't a political decision, that actually, you know, a lot of countries have offered up their support, people that they say that they will send, search and rescue teams, um, aid convoys. But it's not about rejecting those offers. Yes. It's simply about having to manage the number of people on the ground. And as I said a minute ago, how to get them to those areas that are most in need. There's concerns that if there are too many vehicles, too many people, it could create bottlenecks and actually exacerbate that problem. So what is the point in having multiple teams from multiple Mm. countries there if they can't actually deliver the services that they are there to deliver? So at the moment, there's four countries that have been allowed into Morocco to help uh, search and rescue teams from the UK, Qatar, Spain, and the UAE. So they are in country offering support. But obviously, as the days go on, the likelihood of any survivors being found does diminish. We've also had a series of of summits recently. We've had BRICS and also the G20 where world leaders, uh, some of the most important, have come together to talk about the things that matter uh, for humanity. Do you think that there should be more of an onus put on these summits in terms of how we gear countries like Libya and Morocco up for situations like this when it comes to climate change? Because, you know, looking at the research, we're likely to see more and more of these natural disasters happening in these uh, lesser developed countries, as it were. Yeah. And it's not just the frequency of these events that's the problem. It's the intensity as well, you know. And in terms of the focus on it, there does seem to be a shift. We're hearing more and more at these summits that people are talking about climate resilience, investing in things like infrastructure, ensuring that building regulations are up to scratch so that they can withstand minor earthquakes or you know, the destruction from some floods, ensuring that that's all in place to make sure that they can do the best that they can and not have to deal with this huge uh, repair bill at the end of it. And the issue, it seems, is not that people necessarily want to invest in it is the fact that countries don't have enough cash to focus on all the things that they need to do. A lot of developing countries need to deal with health, with starvation, with other really key issues that uh, support life, let alone uh, the eventual or, or impending disasters that might be on the way. And so spending that money and getting enough cash appears to be the problem. Western nations uh, are looking at investing more. The G20 confirmed it's going to triple investment in renewable energies, trying to reduce the impact of greenhouse gases. But it's going to be a long road for that to have any noticeable effect on the amount of emissions that are thrown up into the air and then the impacts on, on the climate itself. It's a really difficult one. Yeah, a, a long road indeed. And I'm sure you agree with me that our thoughts and prayers are with the people in Libya, Morocco, that they can get back on the road and, and, and really recover as quickly as possible. Yeah, but it will be a long time until they can find any sense of normality, I think. Last week, we took a look at what we were hoping to come from the G20 summit. We said we should all limit our expectations about what might materialise, and we were right. Not a whole lot has changed in the world since it ended. But it wasn't just a peacocking exercise for world leaders. There were some serious, fruitful talks, especially around global trade corridors. Now, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi unveiled a new deal that could potentially speed up trade between India, the Middle East and Europe. One country has been left out. And can you guess who that is? That's right. It's us. Brilliant. Um, Sarah Owen called Rishi Sunak out on this at PMQs yesterday, on Wednesday that is. Let's take a listen to what they said. 
At the weekend, seven global economic powers came together, including India, the US and the EU, to agree a monumental trade agreement, but not the UK. Can the Prime Minister say if he chose not to sign up because he thought it was presumably a bad deal, or was the UK left out altogether because this Prime Minister has as weak a reputation on the world stage as he does at home? Mr. Mr. Speaker, I think I'm not sure if the uh, Honourable Lady was here for the statement on Monday. I rather assume not. I think what, what she's describing wasn't a trade deal, so first of all, she should get her facts right. Uh, and as I explained on Monday, as I explained on Monday, there are lots of different ways that countries will participate in solving international issues. Uh, we at the same conference that she mentioned, the same summit, we announced a record investment to the Green Climate Fund. It is the single biggest investment by this country to help uh, with international climate finance and it was warmly welcomed by countries at the summit who can see that the UK is taking a leadership role and help com- helping countries adapt and mitigate the impacts of climate change. Laura, what do you make of his response? Well, wasn't much of one, was it? A bit sit down silly Billy, mm. uh, weren't you here on Monday? And trying to bluster and fumble his way through this answer to try to detract from the fact that the UK was nowhere near this deal. Yeah. The UK still likes to think it's a massive global player. Perhaps we're just not that anymore. I think a lot of it is down to the roots that this trade deal is going to involve. So it's part of a wider scheme called the Partnership for Global Infrastructure Investment. It's going to link Europe with the Middle East and India. Mm -hmm. And the UK is no longer part of the European bloc, the EU. And so why do we matter in these discussions when we're not part of that key trading united block? And what was interesting was looking at those statements that were released by India, by the White House in particular, by President Biden, after these meetings had taken place, this deal uh, signed off or memorandum of understanding that was signed off on the sidelines of the G20, in which there was absolutely no mention of the UK, no offer of thanks to Prime Minister Rishi Sunak or any other UK officials. So it really was shoving the UK to the side. And what I think is even more of a blow for the government is the fact that this partnership was first rolled out when the UK had the G7 presidency in Carbis Bay, southwest England, 2021. And so that will be a sore point, I imagine. And we heard Sarah Owen there clearly quite angry in in her delivery of this question. What about everyone else? What have people been saying uh, to this news online, on Twitter, but also in the circles that you move? Well, people have just been a bit shocked, really, about the fact there's no UK mention, but then also looking towards Brexit, saying perhaps this is another indication that things aren't going as well as they should have. And it's just another blow, isn't it, for for UK trade, essentially. Now, the UK will counter that, the UK government will counter that, saying that they're focusing on the likes of Mexico, they're shifting towards the Indo-Pacific, trying to build links with Asia or Southeast Asia, and that will be their focus. But there's no doubt there that Rishi Sunak was blustering. Do you think part of the reason uh, the UK is not involved with this is that it doesn't really want to upset China that much? It's delicate, isn't it, those relations? We are relatively dependent on China for trade. There is this chance that, you know, Rishi Sunak and the rest of the UK government don't want to cheese uh, China off because they need that cheese China off because they do need those routes to remain open. And so that's possible. But I think it's more likely to be 
around the fact that we are no longer part of the EU. Yeah. Now, it's not all about as as much as we like to bang on about how important the UK is. And of course, it's because we live here. But what else do we take away from the G20 summit? What, what were the key things that came from it? One of the big issues that have been spoken about is the fact that the language that was used to describe Russia's invasion of Ukraine was massively dampened down. People refusing to outright criticise it. Mm. Um, and that was seen as a win uh, for Russia. That's according to the foreign ministry anyway. Yeah. There's also a G20 African Union expansion. So bringing in more African countries into the conversations here, that's going to be really important because there is this shift and particularly from India to try to lift the voices of the global south, those developing nations, getting them around the table involved in these kinds of conversations. And so that has been, been key as well. And there was also... Um, a real mention this time on diversity and religion. Right. So a paragraph within the communique, that document that's issued at the end of summits, trying to basically set out in simple terms what's been discussed, what's been decided, that they want to deplore acts of religious hatred. Now, that's quite a shift, not really been in included in any of this before. Yeah. And one of the other big things, despite language being softened towards Russia was the fact there was no family photo again. We normally see the leaders rolled out, uh, yeah. sitting together, having a look at, you know, a little jostle and a little smile. Yeah. Um, there wasn't one oh. again. Why because Go on. Because that was their way of saying that they don't agree with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So they might have, with the language, said one thing, but with their bodies, another. Yeah, it's all very confusing, isn't it? Where yeah. do people stand? You know, you've got to un unpick it massively. And then even then you might not get to the, the final final answer, really. No, there's politics. There's the economy. There's thinking about the future. There's so many aspects to conversations rather than just right and wrong. And I think it's quite difficult as a bystander to really comprehend just exactly what it takes as a leader to discuss key issues at these events because there are so many other factors that you need to consider in every conversation. It's not simply about the one issue that you're there talking to another leader about. It's a complicated game. Now, I don't know about you, Laura, but this has been a pretty hard-hitting episode, lots of uh, doom and gloom. So how about something good but also nice? I'd love it. Yeah, me too. Um... Wales, it's not really known for its massive sea turtle population, no. but something new has just happened, hasn't it? What, what's, what's going on there? Yeah, so this is about little Tally the turtle, as oh. she's been called. Nice name. She's a Kemp's Ridley turtle, one of the rarest turtles in the world. And she was found, as you said, uh, mm. in North Wales, where you're more likely to find seaweed than sea turtles. Exactly. Clinging on to life. So a dog walker found her on the beach, thought that she was dead. Uh, taken to a rescue centre where she was put into intensive care for months trying to bring her back to her absolute best. Yeah. And they've managed it, it seems. Tally has survived. Fantastic. Now, the surprising thing about this story is not just that she's washed up. She washed up 4,000 miles from home. Yeah. She was normally found in the Gulf of Mexico. That's where this type of turtle normally swims and lives its mm. lovely sea life. But sometimes baby turtles can get uh, washed away and washed across the Atlantic by the Gulf Stream. And it seems like this has happened to Tally. Now, Anglesey Sisu, the ones that have nursed this lovely little creature back to life, Legends. have now actually said that she's well enough and she's been flown back to the US yeah. by a group called Turtles Fly 2. 
Tattles Which I love. Too. Yeah, Tattles Fly oh. too. For a second chance at life, they say. She's going to be released off the Texan coast to join her old family, her, her brethren. Yeah. In that sea. That's lovely, isn't it? It is lovely. It's probably a good place to leave it, isn't it, Laura? Yeah. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Uh, listeners, did you enjoy this episode? Well, if you did, I've got some news. We release episodes just like this every Friday. And not only are there well over a thousand others that we've already recorded, there's also a new episode of The Bunker every day. Remember, you can get them before everyone else, as well as exciting new merchandise for backers coming soon, but only when you backers on Patreon. Patreon. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Jones, reporting from the bunker. The Bunker Global was written and presented by Chris Jones and Laura Makinishawood. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker Global is a Podmasters production.